And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. I am so excited for this episode today. We are going to talk about the Battle of Los Angeles. But first of all, I'm going to tell you about the Battle of the Battle of Los Angeles, which is basically my struggle in getting this show put on the air. It is very difficult to find a knowledgeable and articulate person to talk about this subject matter, but I found one in Dr. Bill Burns Esquire. I'm going to talk a little bit more about him in a second. Let me give you a brief synopsis in case you're unfamiliar with the Battle of Los Angeles. February 24th, early hours of February 25th, 1942, an object appears over the skies, Culver City, California, very close to Los Angeles. This thing floats to the coast right around Santa Monica, and as it slowly makes its way up the coast towards Venice, the the, the anti-aircraft cannons along the coast of California are alerted, spotlights hit this thing, there's definitely something up there, and they unload about 1,400 rounds into it. Seemingly, they don't hit it. This thing floats off into the distance, and no one could find it. No one knows what happened. No one knows what it was. This thing made national news in newspapers. It was reported on live uh, while it was happening. Lots of historical record of this event. No one knows what it was. Was it a UFO, extraterrestrial? Well, obviously, it was a UFO. It was definitely unidentified. It was definitely flying, and it was definitely an object. So we can agree on that. But was it extraterrestrial? No one knows. Was this thing... um, was it made by the Japanese? No one knows. Uh, you got to remember, this is right in the middle of, of World War II. Was this thing a German bomber? Was this thing American? No one had any idea. To this day, no one really knows what this thing was. So we're going to talk about it. Bill Burns, the man I mentioned earlier. Now, this guy is the guy to talk about it. Not only is he a doctor, not only is he a lawyer, but he's an author. And he's a, and he's a celebrity. This guy is, in the UFO world, he is... Um, I don't want to say the crown prince, he may be the king, but he's definitely one of the best experts out there. Now, you may know him from the TV shows UFO Files, Ancient Aliens, with my boy Dr. Michael Denon. They were do, they were experts on the same show. And then there was UFO Hunters, or he was the, the lead investigator on this thing. Now, he's also an author. He put together, he's the editor for UFO Magazine. Uh, he partook in The Day After Roswell, edited it with, with uh, Philip Corso. Um, this guy uh, is prolific in the world of UFOlogy. I'm going to talk to him. We're going to get to the bottom of this thing. Um, as a matter of fact, why waste any more time talking about it? Let's get to the bottom of this thing. Uh, first of all, Dr. Burns Esquire, thank you for being on the show today. What's amazing about this is that I've been trying to do an interview about the Battle of Los Angeles for years, and I could never find the right person and then uh, I heard you do a talk on it, and I was like, this is the guy. And it kind of worked out because today, the day we're recording this, is the 75th anniversary. It's the February 25th. Exactly, uh, February 25th, 1942. How amazing it's a is real... that? Well, for I me, mean... <laughs> but not necessarily for anyone else, but I'm excited. Actually it, started, actually, it started on February 24th, 
right before midnight, and then it 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 carried over into the early morning hours. But it was it was a panicky day. It was a it, it was panic. I mean, when you hear some of the news broadcasts that were being done in uh, let's say in downtown Hollywood, which is what maybe ten miles away, fifteen miles away. Um, <clears throat> When you're listening to those radio broadcasts, you could hear the thundering of the anti-aircraft guns off in the distance. Oh, wow, really? I guess it's close enough. Yeah. Of course you'd be able to, at least the base. Um, oh, yeah, and they could see the searchlights. I mean, <clears throat> I, I don't know where you're located, but um, wh- uh, where are you located? So I live uh, south of Hollywood, so um, I live like okay, so w- Miracle live... Mile area. Okay, fine. So then if you live in the Miracle Mile area because I lived in L.A. for 20 years, if you live in the Miracle Mile area, then, then <clears throat> only an Angelino really knows that when you are, if you realize how quickly the land drops toward the Pacific, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. you're driving through Santa Monica, and then you know when the time Definitely. comes, you're, uh, you're hitting the ocean, <laughs> you know, you're on the hill, yeah. you see this big blue thing off in the distance, <laughs> and you go down, down, down. Right. Well, when you're in Hollywood... So let's say that you're at you're broadcasting from Hollywood and Highland, right? That that record building, which is as ancient as dirt. If you're broadcasting from there, and I used to have an office in that building, you can look right out over the ocean from the top floors, and that's where they're broadcasting from. So they're seeing the entire thing play out from 15 miles away. They're seeing the searchlights. They're hearing the anti-aircraft weapons. Um, and so they, uh, they're giving a basically blow-by-blow description of what's going on, and they're amazed. Well, I can only imagine. And, you know, we called the Battle of Los Angeles, but it wasn't real. It was more like a one-sided firefight. But now let's give – now, we kind of teased it enough. Let's give some context because I think context is very important to this. Uh, we're talking about – this is – so first of all, from, from a UFO standpoint, this is five years before Roswell. Um, which is which is incredible. We'll get back to that. But you know, from a social standpoint, you know, we're we're in the throes of World War II. Um, we're five days out from FDR signing um, Executive Order nine zero six six, which started the internment camps. Uh, we're we're a couple weeks out from from the attack on Pearl Harbor. Um, can you explain a little bit about about what's going on mentally and socially and psychologically with everyone in LA? First of all. What's going on is that the west coast of that the west coast of um, uh, the west coast of the United States, all the way from the Aleutian Islands in Alaska, all the way down the west coast, uh, had been already attacked. So this is not a case where the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Nothing was going on in the United States. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, oh. You know, it's a war across the ocean. That is absolutely not the case. The panic on the west coast of the United States was intense because what happened was the Japanese uh, Japanese submarines were lurking off the west coast of the United States, and on their four decks, they had seaplane ramps. So what the Imperial Japanese Navy was able to do was um, surveil the U.S. coasts with um, seaplanes. In a couple of cases, in, especially up in um, the Santa Barbara area, a Japanese submarine shelled the Santa Barbara coast. So the United States mainland was actually attacked by the Japanese 
after Pearl Harbor in um, the middle to late January 1942. And, and so the attack you're talking about, the attack you're talking about was two days before the Battle of Los Angeles, the one in Santa Barbara, Correct. which is not far. A lot of yeah. people have weekend homes in Santa Barbara in L.A. I used to drive when we had a boat up in the um, when we had a boat up in the Channel Islands. Well, we were living in um, near Santa Monica. We were actually living in Venice. And we would drive up to um, the Santa Barbara area to get our boat. Yeah, absolutely. We drive past. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it's not a brutal drive. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, I mean, it's a weekend. It's like a morning drive on a Saturday morning to have a wonderful, or Friday afternoon, get out of the office early. Exactly. So when you realize how close it was to L.A., then the other thing, of course, is, to me, the big thing is, these were, it was, these were, I have my own theories which we can get into, but uh, uh, these were very slow-moving objects. And they were moving from the coast, the northern end of um, the um, Santa Barbara counties, uh, the Santa Barbara area, moving from that area all the way down south towards Long Beach. So if it's traveling that far, and that slowly, and it is I think you're, picked up yeah, on I think you're getting, ahead, you're getting ahead of us a little bit. Let's not talk about the craft just yet. I want to, I want to set the tone. Okay. Um, because sure. what you're saying, because basically what you're describing um, is kind of the, the situation in the United States that it was after 9-11. You know, we've been attacked. We don't know who's who. Um, everyone is on guard for something. Right. So and everyone, the run up to you know, World War Two, we yeah. basically were sitting for the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, and that's what got us into World War Two. But we couldn't tell anybody about it, and that's why on the west coast of the United States, as of the end of December, January into February, there was basic panic across the west coast of the United States, even though the administration knew that the Japanese could not launch an attack on the American mainland. So that's the setting for the Battle of L.A. in 1942. There were attacks on the U.S. mainland. There, were, there, were, there was um, shelling up in Santa Barbara. But we knew the Japanese did not have the capacity to launch a fleet against the United States. Well, and, and, and you're making a great point. It's kind of what I said earlier is that this, you know, it's kind of something we can relate to or, or, you know, people who weren't around back then can, can kind of relate to the, the feeling of paranoia because it's very similar to 9-11. You know, the parallels are very obvious. And I know what I was like back then. I was in Boston when 9-11 happened. So I know what paranoia is like. So this is what's happening. We got internment camp starting. We got Pearl Harbor recently. We got, we got attacks on, on Santa Barbara. We got attacks in Alaska. This is the panic. And then on February 24th and into the 25th, as you said, we had radar. Something pings on the radar and it sets off the, the Navy and the Army. There's a blackout issued in Los Angeles. Air raid sirens go off and then searchlights go up. What happened? The searchlights pinpoint something, something in the sky. Now, the question is, what was it? Was it a commercial airliner? Was it a Japanese warplane? Was it a balloon? Because that was what the military said, that a weather balloon. And then they said, no, no, it was a surveillance balloon. Had come loose from its tethers and was floating, because it was floating with the wind. It was floating south from... Um, 
from uh, the Channel Islands area. It was actually north of L.A. flying. It was heading south down towards Long Beach. So it well, was before a, anyone is even deciding what it was, I mean, this was no one knew. They just saw something on radar. That's right. They didn't uh, know it what it moved was over Culver City. Right. So what what happens as soon as it's on radar and and the people are alerted? Well, there's an alert going out. As you said, there's a blackout in L.A., sirens go off, the coastal batteries are alerted, searchlights go on to pinpoint this thing, and what then happens is as this object um, floats or flies south, 1,400 anti-aircraft shells are fired at this object, 1,400 anti-aircraft shells, and... 50 caliber machine guns go off. So we, so it is the full force. It's, it's like this was like a naval broadside of artillery against this object. But they never hit it. Why? Well, and the other thing that's very strange about that is, you know, anti-aircraft batteries, there's, there's, things are going up there. They're, they're, to say that they didn't hit anything is evidenced by we didn't recover any any kind of downed craft. We didn't we didn't Correct. recover any pieces of the craft, right? But if you if you look at some of the pictures and and you listen to the descriptions of people who were there, we hit something, but it seemed like what was that what was hit wasn't hit. It seemed like the things were exploding, you know, a couple feet off of the thing, as if it, yes, and why. Why would that be? And there's one other mystery that night, besides the fact we couldn't hit anything, besides the fact nobody could tell what was caught in the searchlights, if you ask witnesses, and I have, because I've spoken to a lot of witnesses who lived in Inglewood, Redondo Beach, in, the, in that area, because when, when we were, remember a few years ago, um, there was a movie called Battle L.A. about these bug-like robotic things that attacked Los Angeles, uh, it was put out by Sony Pictures. I was on the team that was pr- uh, uh, basically giving the historical background for the Battle of L.A. I was working for Sony Pictures. And so we had a whole panel talking about this. And one of the elements about this panel was, why was it that nothing was hit that night? Nobody could understand why with all the This is... A, a, an artillery battery defending the coast of the United States. Are they that incompetent that they couldn't hit whatever it was in the air? I mean, were we that vulnerable that something flying right over one of the most populated cities in the United States, Los Angeles, could have uh, theoretically bombed L.A. and we couldn't have shot it down? Why was that? That's the mystery. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, you know, once so once the radar is pinged, the people, you know, the the army, the navy, uh, everyone's alerted to this. We go into, you know, attack mode. The amount of of craft that they said they saw that all changes. It's like once once they started firing, um, no one really knew what happened after that because the, the what people said that they saw changes drastically depending absolutely. on who you talk to. Absolutely so, true. So, some people, yeah, some people said, yeah. oh, I'm seeing an object. Um, maybe it's a flying saucer. Somebody else said, well, I don't know what it is, but I know that something was in the searchlights. Another witness that I just spoke to a few weeks ago said, oh, no, no, I saw a flight of something like 20 planes. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Well, and so what, what's hard is that you have this, something happened, right? We can all agree something happened. We can all agree that it's, that it's unexplained as of today, um, officially, right? But officially, can, is, that's true. Right. That's true. Now, the hard part is that, so the beginning, we can kind of say like, oh, you know, we, we, you know, everything that I just said up to this point is pretty much documented fact. Once the firing starts, it's very difficult to kind of string out fact from fiction. Except and for that's a where it gets muddy. Okay. Right. But there's something, but in all the explanations that we've heard so far, I mean, and we're talking about lay explanations, right? We're not talking about military strategy. There is still a missing mystery. We are missing one thing that we're not talking about from that night. One thing. Now, look at it from this point of view. If, in fact, radar picked up something that the military believed was Mm. hostile aircraft, what would you think you are the, let's say, the local area commander of the Army Air Force. There was no Air Force back then. It was the Army Air Force. So you're the local commander uh, um, from, let's say, the Los Angeles Air Force Base, assuming that existed, um, of a local air command. What would you do? What's the one thing that you would think we would do? Track it. Figure out where it went, where it's going, what it is. Would be my. What's the other thing we would do? There's something really important. Um, <clears throat> enemy planes. We think. This is why I'm not a ranking official be... in, the, in the army, by the way. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. I said this is why I'm not a ranking official in our military. Okay, no, I but no I mean, idea. really, think about this. Okay. <clears throat> we think radar picks up an object heading toward the American coast, flying over the American West Coast. What's the one thing? The one thing we should have done. Send up interceptors. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where were American fighters? There were no American fighter planes in the air that night. They weren't there. Well, now, now hold on. Why? Now, that's, now that's an interesting question that you're asking. Um, and I will say, I want to go back to what I said. I did say we should send people up and track this thing. People who are listening, yeah. go back and, and I, I, maybe I can be a commanding officer in the military. But what's interesting about that is while researching this, the History Channel did um, a documentary on the Battle of Los Angeles, talked to a retired professor. His name is, I will tell you exactly what his name is. It is uh, C. Scott Littleton. He's a retired professor. Scott Littleton, who was a friend of He's dead now. Oh, I'm sorry. Now it's the late Scott Littleton. Late Scott. He was a friend of mine. So, so he, on this, on this documentary, says he was, a, he was nine years old when this happened, and he said he, right after the barrage started, Five interceptor planes went up, and he, he said, I saw them. I know they went up, but no one has admitted that they went up since. So he, he says on, I mean, to hit the, the best of his knowledge, five interceptor planes went up and tracked this thing as it flew away. So I took what Scott Littleton said, because I was working for the History Channel back then. I took what Scott Littleton said and compared it to what somebody else said who lived in Inglewood. And... He said that he saw a, a, a flight of planes that night okay. that were picked up in the searchlights. Okay. My theory is this. I agree with Scott Littleton, and I agree with the person who said he saw the flight of planes. My theory is they were ours. 
In other words, the reason there were no dogfights up there that night, the reason nobody saw dogfights between planes or between objects or saw planes firing on, there were no planes firing on the object. The reason is they were our planes. My theory is that what the Battle of Los Angeles really was, it was mystery shopping. It was an attempt by the United States' own Air Defense Command its own Army Air Force Command, to test the effectiveness of the batteries. Now, your next question, which you're probably forming right now, is, but Bill, if we were testing the anti-aircraft batteries, what would happen if we shot down one of our own planes? And that's point number two. The planes were flying above the altitude level of the, where the shells could go. These were planes flying very high. Why would planes fly very high over artillery shells? Because what we were testing that night was, yes, we were afraid the Japanese would attack. We knew the Japanese had already attacked north of L.A. because they'd shelled Santa Barbara. So what did we do? If we sent planes up at an altitude beyond the altitude of our anti-aircraft weapons, Let's see how effective the shore batteries were in responding to a Japanese air attack. But there were no Japanese, they were American planes. And I believe that's what happened that night. And the reason nothing was hit was that the planes were flying too high for the anti-aircraft batteries to hit. They were testing, they were testing the range of the anti-aircraft batteries. So that's one. Two, had we... Was this a military strategy? Was there something about this that was strategic? And the answer is yes. That in, so let's move forward in time 20 years. In the 1960s, we were sending U 2 planes up doing the exact same thing. We were sending our U 2 spy planes up at, what, 85,000 feet, which we believe would be beyond the altitude of Soviet anti-aircraft missiles, but we needed to test to see how responsive those missiles were just in case, you know, we ever went to war and we were going to bomb them. How effective with, uh, was their radar and, the, and their anti-aircraft missile batteries? That's why we sent the U-2s up. They weren't just surveilling Soviet missile bases. They weren't just surveilling the Soviet Union. They were actually testing the ranging shots of Soviet missiles. And it was an improved Soviet missile that brought down Francis Gary Powers in his U-2. Now, go back from 1942, back to the 19th century, when the British were fighting the colonial wars in Africa. What the Zulus, for example, did during the Zulu Wars they would have their warriors stationed at certain points to see the range of the British Enfield rifles. And if the British Enfield rifles couldn't hit them, they knew that was a safe distance. Well, this was the exact same thing. And the Native Americans, the Indian tribes in, the, in America did that as well. They would um, stay just beyond the range of the American rifles, of the American cavalry, and just to see how close they could get. And so testing the range of weapons is something that has been going on probably ever since the 
14th century. So I believe that's what they were doing, and I believe that was the reason we didn't send up, or we didn't see any air battles that night between fighters and bombers, or between interceptors and enemy fighters, primarily for one reason, the planes in the air were our planes. And they were and they were testing the effectiveness, the response, and the range of our anti-aircraft weapons. Okay, so now I, I guess I'm a little confused, so I'm, I just want to connect a couple dots here. So from okay. what I understand, one object was pinged on the radar. It comes, it flies over Culver City, down Santa Monica, up to Long Beach, and we're firing on this object. Um, right. So and this object appears not to be hit. It appears like things are exploding just out of range. We catch it in several searchlights. Uh, this is this is national news. Um, I'm going to put put radio original radio broadcasts up, original pictures from the L.A. Times. We got it's all over the newspapers. Um, so, Correct. So this. So you're saying that that object we put into the air, or you're saying yes, that's what I'm saying. So what I'm was that object? That, that object. Well, I believe it was a plane. I mean. Okay. There were people who said, oh, no, it was a flying saucer because we did Photoshop on the photographs. You're doing Photoshop. First of all, if you're going to analyze a photograph taken during the 1940s, what do you have to have to make that analysis credible? The, it's the one thing you have to have. the original negative. You have to have the negative, yeah. right? It doesn't make sense to do it. This is not digital photographs. These are... These are negatives, and the cameras that were used in the 1940s were these big press cameras, uh, these big Graflex press cameras. That's what was being used in the 1940s. Unless you had that photographic plate for the negative, you don't really know what's on that. So folks today that are saying, oh, I, fo <clears throat> I spoke to one person say, who told me I photoshopped and it was a flying saucer. What did you photoshop? You photoshopped something that appeared on the web that was the front page of the Los Angeles Times. So it is a print which has lost all its resolution for the most part because it's a copy of a copy of a copy. So that's first of all. It's, it's a print from a negative that's been reproduced how many hundreds of thousands of times? That's what you're looking at. Now it's digitized probably well below what the um, resolution is for um, manipulating the photo. So you're taking it from your computer screen, from your computer hard drive, and you're doing Photoshop on that. What generation is that photograph that you are now manipulating by Photoshop? God that doesn't knows, work. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't work. So that's first of all. So you can't say, oh, I saw a flying saucer in the searchlights um, from the LA Times photo. No, you didn't. You saw something, but you didn't know what it was. If it's flying that high, you can't tell if it's one object or 10 objects. The eyewitnesses who saw it that night were saying there, at least one said there were multiple objects. So whether it's one object, whether it's multiple objects, it was certainly flying out of range of the anti-aircraft weapons because if it were flying lower, if it were actually a bomber that had to fly a little lower, it would have been hit because we sent up a wall of flak that night. If you look at some of the newsreels, what you'll see is you could have walked on the anti-aircraft explosions and the shrapnel from those explosions fell back on the beach, fell onto houses. They started fires in L.A. Um, so that was the other 
panic, that it was the anti-aircraft shells themselves that were falling back to earth and exploding that were causing all the damage. It didn't come from a plane, it came from our own anti-aircraft shells. In fact, I have a piece of that shrapnel. It's kind of a one inch by one inch by one inch, very sharp, a square with very sharp corners. Uh, LAPD was on the beach that morning collecting pieces of shrapnel. And there was actually an ongoing business. People would go out on the beach, collect the shrapnel and try and sell it as souvenirs. So that was what happened on the later in the morning on the 25th. Well, so now I got to tell you, you're throwing me for a loop here because this is not where I expected you to go with this, which is I know which is nobody fine. does. No, no, that's but fine. The, so, so let, let me let me just I just want to connect a couple more dots here, just so, so I understand. Because you know, if if we go with that approach, which is a completely logical approach, it makes a lot of sense to me. So let's go with that approach. Why would if the military was planning a training exercise, given the given the psychological, social, and phys- and, and, and uh, mental climate that we've described? earlier why would they announce an unscheduled test um at night in the middle of the night uh without any kind of warning in a major metropolitan area you know not that far removed from the war of the worlds uh where panic struck um glad you brought that up but we can talk about that as well but go ahead so i'm just curious given the the social response to panic in the past and historically in the past why would they make an unscheduled training exercise in the middle of the night and seemingly not alert half of the people who were involved? Because this was reported as, as an unidentified object that we were firing That's upon. That's exactly right. That's right. Now, answer your own question. Why would they do that? I can't interview myself. What's the point? What's the point of mystery shopping if it's no longer a mystery? What's the point of having a real test of your coastal defenses, if you let them know in advance, we're going to have a test of our coastal defenses. So all you guys, your air raid wardens, you get out there, coastal defense gunners, you get out there, because in five, four, three, two, one, we're going to test it. Where's the surprise? How do you know how effective your anti-aircraft batteries are going to be? Look at the show um, where the, um, uh, the reality television show now, where the boss mystery shops his own company. Right. How do you know that it's – I used to work for um, a sales management company training bankers, and one of the things we would propose would be we would bring in mystery shoppers to the bank to see how the bank officers would respond to a customer. If we uh, do restaurant reviewers announce, oh, tonight I'm going resta- uh, to review Spago, so get ready, Spago, because sure. I'm coming tonight. No. Yeah, yeah, no I get that. When you do this, you do this as a mystery. That's what happened. Was it stupid? Yes. Why was it stupid? Because you had anti-aircraft shells falling back on civilian homes. That's why it's stupid. You had people having heart attacks. There were How many people had heart attacks? Four or five people yeah. that night mm-hmm. had heart attacks? You had to mobilize the police. You had to mobilize the fire department. It was a great air raid. That's what it was. It was an air raid drill. But it was an air raid drill that was unannounced, that was meant to throw the area into panic because what we wanted to see was how the West Coast of the United States, particularly California, responded to an air raid. And that was also a precondition for, and you pointed it out, the Japanese internment camps and the executive order. 
Okay, that level of panic, that level of confusion, all of that, that was actually something that we wanted to see. And so what we did illegally, I believe, was that we set up the internment camps because we were trying to lock down the West Coast of the United States. You brought up the War of the Worlds, the 1938 radio broadcast, War of the Worlds. You know the backstory of the War of the Worlds? Do you know what the point of war, you know who, first of all, <clears throat> who put it on the radio? Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater right. of the Year, correct? correct? That was the War of the Worlds. Mm -hmm. And who paid for that? Uh, I don't know. Good question. I'm sure you know Here's the answer. Here's how it was paid. Okay. I do. Okay. The Rockefellers. Okay. The, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the person who was responsible for setting up the War of the Worlds radio broadcast for hiring Orson Welles in the Mercury Theater of the Year was a man called Frank Stanton. Frank Stanton was the head of kind of, it was back in the 1930s, it was really before the days of, of, of modern analytics, obviously, but that was his field. He was a researcher in the field of um, population response, audience response. In fact, he was at Princeton University, which is why the whole thing took place right outside of Princeton. Mm -hmm. That was his, that's where he was living. And Frank Stanton later went on to work for Bill Paley at CBS and later went on to be the head of CBS. Very, very important person, Frank Stanton. And uh, in, in American media history, Frank Stanton was responsible for getting funds from Lawrence Rockefeller at Princeton to pay the Mercury Theater of the Air to do the War of the Worlds broadcast. Why would he do that? Why would he want to do that kind of a broadcast. Why? Because what Frank Stanton and the Rockefellers were testing was what would the response of the public be to an invasion? And what's the best invasion to get? Well, get it from H.G. Wells and do the uh, War of the Worlds. H.G. Wells was writing motion picture scripts in the 1930s. In fact, in 1937, H.G. Wells wrote the script for a movie called Things to Come, starring Raymond Massey. So he was actually working for American studios back then. So we simply, uh, they simply bought the rights to his novel, War of the Worlds which was a satire, by the way. It wasn't meant to be science fiction. It was meant to be a satire. We can talk about that, but that's off topic. But it was meant to be a satire. And um, so they bought that. And then, even though they made announcements during the news broadcasts, then after that, here's what they did. They were the ones, Frank Stanton's group was the, uh, was the group that said there were panic, that there was panic in the streets. There was no panic in the streets. Nobody panicked that night of the War of the Worlds broadcast. That was manufactured news. Today we'd call it fake news. But it was manufactured news about who panicked. And that whole case study of what happened when people thought that there was an alien invasion and they were panicking in the streets, that study went to the Rand Corporation, and that was why the Rand Corporation came out with its report decades later that we should never announce that we've discovered aliens and ETs and alien artifacts and flying saucers because it would send the country into a panic. And that's still the operational theory in the United States today. And that goes back 80 years to the 1930s. 
That's that is that's actually very interesting. Um, but I wanna I wanna ask you some I wanna ask you some questions because as we're talking, I'm starting to think of a lot of questions um, to ask. Sure. So, so, so first of all, like I'm on board. I'm not trying to push you in a direction. Of of what no, answer? No, go ahead. Fine. You know, argue with no, me. No, That's no, the no, whole no, point no, of a good radio no, no, show. So, but this is interesting. So, so I'm going to go with because I haven't heard this theory before. But, uh, but, uh, but it's interesting. Uh, so the idea that that this that this object was ours that we were testing our batteries makes complete sense, and we've done it before. We've and it, it makes sense that we've done that. So, so the question I have is, from what I understand from the reports, is that we were shooting them. It wasn't that we didn't hit them, as we said earlier, that you agreed to. We hit something. I mean, our, our shells were exploding. Things were coming back to no, Earth. No, the shells explode on their No, no, no. The shells explode on their own. Uh, the way an anti-aircraft weapon works is that it, it basically lobs shells toward an object. At a certain altitude that explodes. And, Yes, and okay. then they have to set the fuse for the altitude okay. uh, for when the shells explode. So it's not as though the shells only explode on impact. They don't. They explode near the object and send shrapnel in. And you know who invented that? The British during the Napoleonic oh, Wars. Okay. They invented because before that um, exploding shells were invented, the British um, <clears throat> naval warfare at that point were basically you would lob balls of lead, and the balls of lead would penetrate the hulls right, of right. ships. Sure, sure. During the Napoleonic Wars, what the British invented were exploding shells. And so the exploding shells would penetrate the hull and then explode inside the ship, or they would explode near the ship and blow the sides of the ship open. So, so that was what an anti-aircraft shell does. It explodes near an object, and then the shrapnel, and then the force of the explosion, the heat, the fire, and the shrapnel destroy the object. Well, we saw the shells explode, but nothing happened to the object. Why? Because the shells were exploding too low. Got it. And because you can accept the fuse, you can, de- you can detonate them at a certain altitude, knowing full well where the range of your weapon is, is what you're saying. Exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's the other question that I have for you. Um, so I, you were recently on the biggest late-night talk show, Coast to Coast, love the show, um, I heard you on it, and I thought this guy is this. He knows Battle of Los Angeles. I've been looking for an expert for Battle of Los Angeles. He's the guy. Now you told some very different stories on that. Like you came to very different conclusions on that show versus what you're telling me now. Um, so what is the discrepancy there? Like because you because you, well, you make a very interesting. I remember writing it down because I was like, oh, I've never heard of that before. Where you make a very interesting. I mean, you say t- something totally different, which is that the shells were exploding against a force field, and then, then you went on to explain how the force field was generated and how, during UFO encounters, how things appear to be out of time because actually the craft is, 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 is being moved through time. It's not a propulsion system, but it's moving time around it. And so, right. I was saying two different things. What I was saying was this. If the object actually was a flying saucer... Okay, so here's, here's, here's the point. Okay. If the object were a flying saucer, I don't believe it was, but if it were, okay. then we're not going to hit a flying saucer with conventional anti-aircraft weapons. Because a flying saucer, to prepare, second two, <clears throat> it appeared to people that night that the object was flying too slowly for a plane. That was w- one of the things the witnesses said, well, it couldn't have been a plane because it was flying so slowly, 
it could, you know, was flying low, uh, uh, slower than its stall speed. So it would have simply stalled out, didn't have the velocity, didn't have uh, uh, the speed to stay aloft. Well, that's an optical illusion because when planes are flying very, very high, they look like they're not moving at all. They look like they're moving very, very slowly in the air when in fact that could be moving at incredible speeds, but it's the altitude that gives you that um, optical illusion that a plane is flying slowly. So I can explain away the slowness of the of the um, object that night by saying it's it's really flying very high and we can't determine what the altitude was. All we know is it looked like it was moving very slowly. So that's first of all. But let's say it was a flying saucer. And let's say the flying saucers were <clears throat> moving very slowly. One of the theories about <clears throat> UFO propulsion systems is that they're not conventional jet engines, they're not conventional rocket engines, they are propulsion systems that rely on the movement of not just space, but space and time. And supposedly when Bob Lazar, the very famous Bob Lazar, who said that he worked at Area 51 on propulsion devices, the very famous Bob Lazar said, that uh, when he was first brought to Area 51, they walked him past a, um, a room that was closed, but it had a window, and you could see through the door what was going on inside the room. He said in the room there was a candle, and the candle was burning. And his handler, or whoever he was, uh, the person he was speaking to, whomever he was speaking to, that person said, keep your eye on the candle. And then very quickly, the candle began to flutter and flicker. And so he, you know, so his thought was, why are you, what's the problem? Are you um, removing oxygen from the room to make it seem as if the can And then the candle actually stopped. It stopped flickering. It stopped moving. He couldn't see, there was no, you, you couldn't see any smoke coming off. It was like the candle froze. And he couldn't figure out how the candle froze. And what the engineer, I'm assuming it was his boss or a handler or somebody, a scientist there, explained that what really happened is they were testing a mechanism. And the mechanism was actually able to move space-time which Einstein said was the same thing, that was his relativity theory, to move space-time across the candle. When it moved space-time across the candle, from outside that envelope, it looked as though, of that field, it looked as though the candle had stopped dead in time, it was frozen. It wasn't. All Lazar was seeing, and this, I'm, just, I'm going from, a statement that's probably third hand from what he said. All that he said he was uh, all that he said he was seeing was that a, a candle that was no longer flickering. The reason was time itself inside that envelope had apparently stopped because time was being drawn across the candle. Space time was being drawn across the candle. Now, it, if you look at that from the point of view of a propulsion system, that instead of a craft flying saucer flying through space and through time, we want to get to this um, 
Trappist star system that we discovered 39 point some decimal point light years away. You want to get there? Oh, it's going to take millions of years, billions of years to get there. How could they get here? Not if you're able to move through time as well as space. If you could drag space and time across you, essentially what you're doing is time is no longer a factor, nor is space in the great distances you're uh, uh, you're traveling. So if if that's the case, and if this were a flying saucer that night uh, on February 25th, 1942, then, just like the stories we hear about UFOs um, in Middletown Township, Ohio, for example, uh, Liberty Township, Ohio. Well, I don't want to go too far uh, down the were, UFO path if that's not what you believe. So, so no, I don't. Okay. No, but what I'm saying is, if it were a UFO, uh-huh. you could explain why the anti-aircraft shells could explode and not hit it, because theoretically, even though you're seeing something in terms of the space-time envelope, the UFO wasn't even there. Well, look, if you're the editor of UFO Magazine, you worked on UFO Hunters, uh, your name is synonymous with UFOs, and you don't believe that the Battle of Los Angeles was a UFO, then I don't believe that the Battle of Los Angeles was a UFO. So, so there's a lot of credibility there. But let's continue on because I have a couple of the questions. If, if, sure. as, as to how this thing worked. So, so we're saying it's an air raid. We're saying that this is a, a surprise test on on the people. So all that stuff kind of works. Now, this thing was said to be. A lot of people said it was glowing orange and moving slowly and hovering from Culver City down to to Venice Beach. Now we don't really have technology that can do that. If unless it was a weather balloon or some kind of floating balloon device. I mean, helicopters who hover, they make a lot of noise. You definitely know it's a helicopter. So if you're saying that this thing is at a high altitude, okay, so I can, I, I, I that, that makes sense to me. So it's, and helicopters don't fly that high, exactly. and we didn't have them in 1942. Yeah, c- correct. So my, my, also with the optical illusion that you're talking about, not only do things appear to move slowly and can appear to hover, but they also decrease in, in perceived size. So from what I understand from the pictures, this was a relatively large object that people saw. So that would yes. mean that if it was at a high altitude, that it must have been an incredibly large object. So how, does, how do you explain that? It's not a single object. It's um, a formation of flames. Okay. I, I mean, that you. would be okay. how I'd explain it, that it looks like a single object at, you know, what, 70, 75,000 feet, but it really is, but it really, and for a propeller plane, that's really that high. Really so high. that's something else, too. It wouldn't have been that high, yeah. yeah. I mean, you're thinking, you know, I'm thinking maybe 50,000, but, but it was at an altitude beyond the altitude of those shells. See, in World War, again, you're looking at 1942. So we didn't have high altitude bombers in 1942. Right, right, right. Um, the, uh, the Japanese didn't have high altitude bombers. When you look at how the Japanese attacked our fleet at Pearl Harbor, these were low mm-hmm. flying planes. That's why some of them were actually shot down right. by um, sailors in um, basically firing from um, bomb craters and machine gun nests. Right. So uh, we, because you had to fly low to make sure your bombing was accurate. This was a, uh, uh, this, if this were a Japanese, a fleet of, and Japanese are not going to send one bomber over. That's crazy. Of course not. not. 
you're going to send a fleet of bombers over like the Germans. That's how you get the maximum effect of a bombing run. So would the Japanese send a surveillance scout plane over? <clears throat> that makes no sense because the Japanese had no ability to launch um, scout craft from land. They would have had to have launched these things from the decks of ships, but there were no Japanese aircraft carriers in the vicinity of the west coast of the United States, but there were submarines. We had radar. We would have picked up an aircraft carrier immediately if it were coming into the United States coastal waters. So it would have had to have been a submarine-launched seaplane, which we know the Japanese had because they used it in Northern California. So if that's the case, do seaplanes fly at a high altitude? No. <laughs> seaplanes fly actually pretty low. So um, if it were a Japanese surveillance craft, we would have shot it out of the sky. And if it were a Japanese surveillance craft, we would have launched our own interceptor fighters to shoot it down, which we did not do. So, okay, so so it's a it's a fleet of of ships that we put into the air for this for this test. Um, so there's, I mean, how come the the easy explanation? So so you know, in 1983, I believe the army and the navy at the time the army and the Na the secretary of war i should say and the um, secretary of the navy um were both at odds with what actually happened right and and all the explanations are pretty silly some say war nerves and they're shooting at nothing uh to a weather balloon that became untethered all these ridiculous explanations that people clearly knew were not the case wouldn't the easiest explanation be that they were doing a testing exercise i mean we do it all the time now people I'm say you know well we're running an exercise blah 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 Sure. Uh, that would have been a very easy thing to do, except for the fact that you're not going to announce it in advance. Okay, look at it from two points of view. One, you're not going to announce it in advance, because if you announce it in advance, it's no longer a mystery exercise, right? right. You're basically defeating the purpose yeah. of surprising your own, uh, of um, an alert on your coastal sure, batteries. Sure. That's one. Mm -hmm. Now here's the second one. You are the local area commander. You are in Franklin D. Roosevelt's War Department. And as a result of your exercise, as a result of your frightening mystery shopping test of your coastal batteries, four people die that night from heart attacks. There's, there's close to easily, easily high six figures, maybe as high as seven figures worth of damage to houses in the area. The government caused that damage. The government caused those deaths. You are an attorney in Los Angeles. What happens? No, okay, so I understand what you're saying about in 1942. But in 1983, when they put out the explanations, why was it not said then? Why are the explanations just as ridiculous in 83? But it doesn't really matter. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure you're, you're the lawyer. I'm not. But I think the statute of limitations probably runs out for property damage. Not in California. Oh, okay. And here's why. Okay. Here's why. There is applicable law in Cal, And I've, I've pleaded this successfully in California courts. Okay. The... the um, the law in California is, and it's probably good law everywhere in the United States, but I know the specific case in California that, uh, that applies. Uh, the law in California is, and it's also kind of black letter law as well, that if 
a defendant in a lawsuit has withheld vital... Okay, first of all, if you're going to file a claim in tort, a claim for damages, right? Your car ran over my foot. Um, I'm filing a claim against you. It's, it, it's negligence. You caused me injury by your breach of a duty of care cause as, a, as a driver. This is a massive breach of duty of care, right? I mean, you, uh, people are dying in their homes from heart attacks because you've launched... Um, uh, a mystery air attack to test your coastal batteries. So you, the United States government is at fault. But in order for you to assign blame to the United States um, in any kind of legal action, you have to prove the United States War Department, the military, is at fault. If they don't admit they're at fault, you can't prove it because this is a top secret test. So unless you can actually, and the burden of proof is on you because you're the plaintiff, unless you can prove by um, a propensity of evidence, by, by, um, by showing that it's more likely than not likely, right, that um, un unless you can prove that with evidence, you can't assign blame to the defendant, which is the United States government. So as a result, so as a result, as long as the United States refuses to admit what it actually did that night, there's no case. There's no, uh, you can't file a claim. Now, your question is, yeah, but Bill, it's 40 years later. It's 1983. Come on. Uh, what happens? Statues of limitations certainly expired. No, they didn't. The reason they didn't is if a defendant who's being blamed for causing a damage doesn't admit to that damage or hides what it did from the plaintiff, it hides it, the statutes of limitations don't begin to toll unless the truth has come out about the activities of the defendant. So even though it's 40 years if the U.S. government admitted, yeah, that was us, can you imagine the great-grandchildren or grandchildren of people who died that night now filing claims for wrongful death? Yeah, I mean, there'd only be six cases, maybe three. But, but I, I, understand, I mean, your point you're making, I do understand that. But it, it seems a little weird that they would hide the truth to stop a couple of lawsuits. But I do understand it's probably property damage, even though it is 40 years later. So, I mean, it does make sense. One last question, as we're running out of time. So, okay. so this is a test run. Planes are out of range. Wouldn't the gunners know that these planes are out of their range, or are they just shooting anyway? That's the test. To see what how the range. That's is, the test right the there. Is. Yeah, that's the test. Well, then who are these? Who are yeah, the guys? Just put your finger on what they were trying to show. Right. But of course, the gunners didn't know. They're firing at something that's in the searchlights but it's too high for them to hit. So that's what the test is designing. How high can a plane fly to trigger the coastal batteries to go on alert and start firing and, and, and just to see what the effectiveness is? Well, I mean, it also tests... And of course, you're not going to... And then uh, you're not going to announce it to the Japanese. Right. Hi, enemies in the Imperial Air Force. Uh, we have just showed you we have just demonstrated what our range is for our anti-aircraft batteries. Well, I'll tell you, it also tests the stupidity of the people flying the planes that they hope that they're out of range of the anti-aircraft guns. Right, so exactly. And, and, and then did the Japanese Betty bombers, 
what was the altitude? Uh, that's what we call them, Betty bombers. Did the Japanese Betty bombers, how high could they fly? How effective would their uh, bomb sites be at high altitudes? A lot of these bomb sites that were developed um, after 1942, that was the other thing too. I mean, we didn't really know. And, and, and back in the 1920s, when Mo Berg was taking those uh, large shots of downtown Tokyo, it was because the, uh, the B-25 Mitchell bombers that were being launched, I think it was from the Hornet, uh, the Jimmy Doolittle raid, they were not high-altitude bombers. They were really exposed to Japanese anti-aircraft fire, and that was, this was February 25th, so they launched, it was basically almost eight weeks later that uh, the Doolittle Raid was launched. So we also knew from, uh, from, uh, uh, from this test <clears throat> what we could expect in, let's say, middle-altitude or low-altitude bombing runs, because when we bombed Tokyo, we didn't bomb it at a high altitude. We knew where we were going because we had the surveillance photos taken by Mo Berg, but um, they would have, we didn't have that kind of technology at the very beginning of the war for high-altitude bombing. That would later be developed when we were bombing the, uh, of, of the German factories and the big squadrons of, of uh, B-17s where it had more effective bomb sites. Well, this is... World War II is one of my favorite times in history. Um, I mean, this is it's unless you were unless you were an adult fighting that war. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, yeah, okay. I study it too, but I mean, yeah, you know, I, I have to realize I'm pretty removed this from is it. war. Yeah, I know, I'm pretty. I'm just saying yeah. the, the period in history, um, the World War II era is is very. I mean, it's there's so much happened between 1935 and 1950 that um, it's just an incredible era. There's so much going on. Um, this has been a very eye-opening experience um, for me because this is not what I expected the outcome to be, but this is a very plausible um, conversation, uh, and, and it makes a lot of sense about the Battle of Los Angeles, one of my favorite pieces of phenomenon. Not only well, let me, I'll, I'll, uh -huh. I'll let me leave you with this about okay. this, because this is something that most people don't realize. Okay. Most really committed UFO researchers are the biggest skeptics in the world. See, people think that UFO researchers, oh, they're just crazy people in tin hats running all the way around screaming, flying saucers, flying saucers, run for your lives. Absolutely not true. Uh, uh, the core, the core of the UFO community, the people who really research this, they're historians, they're engineers, they're scientists, they're physicists. Um, and, and what they do is they work on, and, and I work the same way, it's on the process of elimination. You eliminate every, it's like Sherlock Holmes, you eliminate everything you can and then study what's left. Well, in this case, when you do that, you can't eliminate the fact that it, uh, um, when you're studying flying saucers, you, you can't just automatically eliminate the conventional. You have to dwell on the conventional as long as you can if you want to eliminate it. So that's why most UFO folks, they will jump on the conventional explanation first because they've got what's known as a plausibility meter. If it's still plausible, you go with that as opposed to 
aliens. You got to know what it isn't to know what it is. Is basically what you're saying. Exactly. Um, yeah. No, this is this is great. I mean, I will say that either in either case, just if, because it wasn't a UFO does not mean that this wasn't in a very interesting uh, point in our history. Um, so, Bill Burns, thanks for being on the show. How can people get in touch with you? You're a prolific author. Um, I know you got websites, interviews. Where can people find you? Well, you can find me all over YouTube. You could find me on the History Channel. You could find me on the Discovery Science Channel. You could go to our website at Future Theater. You could go to our website at uh, shadowlawnpress.com. And um, you'll see articles there and things like that. And, of course, I've got two books coming out this year. Um, one book coming out in May is uh, it's called Edison, uh, Tesla versus Edison, The Last Invention. And the point of that book is that both Edison and Tesla, around during the decade of the 1920s, had one common goal, even though they were very bitter rivals, they hated each other, they had one common goal, to find, to invent a device that could communicate with the dead. That was there. That was what Edison was trying to do. It was called the spirit phone. Find a way to talk to the dead, but from two different theories. That's this book that's coming out in May. Then in the fall of this year, there's a book coming out called Paranormal Presidents, All the Presidents, UFOs, and All the Presidents, Ghosts. And that is a paranormal history of the United States presidency all the way back from the Massachusetts Bay Colony in the middle 17th century, all the way to um, the theory of Donald Trump's White House that um, we are coming near the end of the world. Hmm. Those sound like incredible books. I'm actually very excited about both of them, specifically the Tesla versus Edison. Um, it seems like that's like right up my alley. I love that stuff. Uh, big fan of Tesla and Edison. Do you do any social media? Do I do social media? Uh, no, you can say no. It's okay. No, I, what I do is I do have a Facebook page, and folks can find me on my Facebook page. I don't go there, <laughs> and I do have a Twitter account only because years and years ago somebody used my name for a Twitter account, so I had to stop that account, and then I just figured I'd better get a, a real Bill Burns account, and it, and that's Bill at ufomag uh, dot com, and um, they could always find me there. Okay. Bill, this has been very eye-opening. Thank you so much for being on the program today. My pleasure. Uh, and I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to fascinatingnouns.com to listen to every past episode or follow the show on social media. You'll find links to those shows, the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages at the bottom of the webpage. You can also subscribe to my newsletter, which will tell you all about upcoming guests as well as other projects that I'm doing, and plus just a couple of little info that you may have never known before. Now, you can subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode on iTunes and Stitcher, and now we're on Google Play, so you have no excuse as to why you're not getting this delivered to your, to your listening device every single week. Now, please check out any other projects on DanielJGlenn.com. You may be interested in them. They may enhance your life, or they may just be fun to listen to and watch. And again, speaking of, thank you so much for listening. End of 
transmission.